From Dame Cacao, I'm Max Gandy, and this is Chocolate on the Road, the show where we explore hot topics surrounding cacao and chocolate cultures around the world. So let's hit the road. A series of articles published a half decade ago, at the end of 2014, sparked a series of half-jokes and serious questions about the world's cacao supply. Namely, will it taper off and disappear by 2050? To find some answers to this question, I spoke with a cocoa researcher, a chocolate maker, and a cacao conservationist. For future reference, the words cacao and cocoa are used interchangeably. Each guest focuses on one vast cocoa-cultivating region, either Africa, Asia, or the Americas. While the future of the world's cocoa supply is a huge question mark, it's very clear that cocoa prices will play a large role. The price paid for cacao is a huge issue for everyone. Farmers cross their fingers for better prices on a faraway market. At the same time, billion-dollar chocolate companies negotiate the lowest prices they can get on that market. If we're being honest with ourselves, every single craft chocolate maker in the United States could say we want to buy cocoa from Ghana and Ivory Coast, and it would be like the tiniest droplet in the humongous ocean that is cocoa in West Africa. This is Christy Leslie, a cocoa researcher based in Accra, Ghana. Millions of West African cocoa farmers grow over two-thirds of the world's cocoa supply. Their livelihoods and the future of chocolate as we know it depend upon what happens to African cocoa. Over the last 15 years, researcher Christy Leslie has spent lots of time on cocoa farms in the region. So I figured she was the perfect person to set the scene of where most of our chocolate grows. So for people who maybe barely even know how chocolate is made, what is the physical environment like on these farms? Like the smell, the weight of the air around you, what you see above, below. Can you paint a picture? Yeah, that's a beautiful question. I mean, for the most part in West Africa, um, it's quite physically uncomfortable to be on a cocoa farm, at least for me. You know, cocoa grows best in a humid, rainforesty kind of environment and here along the southern portion of West Africa, where cocoa grows, for the most part, you have these like pretty sweltering conditions and it's, it feels quite close. You know, the air can feel very oppressive, um, particularly if it's like humid out that day or if we're in the rainy season. During the dry season, like we're, we're into now, it's incredibly hot. The ground is covered with leaves and piles of like discarded cocoa pods that are you know basically left to kind of rot or in some cases they're burned and people make soap out of them but you know there's always like discarded pods around and there's always crunchy leaves that have fallen from the trees or damp ones and it's always like a balance between trying for me trying to like cover my whole entire body so I don't get bitten by something and also trying to manage the heat so yeah it's not it's not comfortable cacao being a tropical plant the heat, smells, and weight of the air is a commonality across continents. From Africa and Asia to the Americas, cacao is not a cool weather plant. But it does have a definite birthplace, South America. 
and that's where much of the genetic diversity of the crop remains. If chocolate were on the way to extinction, that's where we'd see the first signs. Right? My name is Jan Schubert. I'm at the moment working as conservation cacao leader for Original Beans, based in Ecuador and in charge of our projects in Latin America. Jan is based in Ecuador, but at the time of this interview, he was working out of a hostel in Colombia. To start, I wanted to get an idea of how commodity cacao is different from specialty cacao. So I asked Jan about his experience on the ground, because he spent the last decade working in cacao throughout the Americas. On the industrial level, I don't have so much experience, but I know one of the hugest exporters in Ecuador. What they do is they purchase dry and wet cacao from all over. Um, but it's not that they're producing for the standard sector. It's just that they export everything which is left over as a mix for this industrial sector. And on the other hand, you obviously have huge haciendas, huge farms that are producing only for the non-fine flavor sector. And some of them have also quite advanced post-harvest systems for fermenting and drying. A part of the story of specialty cacao is marketing. So I know that there are also quite simple non-special cacao sold as specialty cacaos just by selecting from somebody who exports, I don't know, 20,000 tons a year. Then you always have the chance to, to select some 20 tons that are good and sell it as a specialty. So insofar as the last four or five years in particular, craft chocolate as a product has really blown up and it seems like a lot more people are aware of it. I mean, this idea that we're running out of cocoa or that people are now willing to pay a much higher price for cacao seems to have motivated a lot of farmers to start planting different types of cacao or to work really hard on post-harvest. Have you seen that change at all? Yeah, unfortunately, to be honest, I, I'm very critical about this whole impact of bean-to-bar movement. Yes, it exists. On the other hand, it is much smaller and super overestimated. About five to seven years ago, there was this wave of people from Europe coming to events like the Salon de Chocolat in Lima or things like that, talking about the specialty market, that it will grow by 200% in one year and whatever, but they never have been talking in, in real numbers. So there has been a lot of cooperatives that got super emotional and thought, okay, I can sell in the future all my cacao for two times world market price. But these doubled prices have not come to fruition, not in the Americas, Africa, or Asia. While some farmers have seen increased prices, it's much more likely to be a 15 or 20% increase due to a fair trade or organic certification. In the end, this means that prices have stayed the same, but quality has risen for now. The quality in general increased a lot in Latin American countries. In the end, the market access was super little. So what happens, in my personal opinion at the moment, is that it's still super, super hard to find very good cacao. 
But if you're just interested in a little bit more standard way of good cacao, so centralized process, good fermentation level, good drying, very clean, and from some kind of fine material, Trinitarius, then the market is so overcrowded, there are cooperatives offering thousands of tons where they expected two times world market price, and at the end, they end up uh, being paid the, the fair trade premium. So if you compare the cacao price at the moment, even the fair trade organic cacao price, market price is below the 2015 market prices, but the qualities you get now for these prices are totally different to 2015. While the vague hype about running out of chocolate barely made it onto most consumers' radars, it made a real impact on the ground. In fact, Freddy Salazar, who runs Costa Esmeraldas Cacao in Ecuador, cited this hype as one of the reasons he chose to plant cacao. You can hear more from Freddy in episode 13, titled Hidden Costs of Crafting Chocolate. But Freddy isn't the only one who's turned to specialty cacao. Overall, farmers are quickly increasing cacao quality. And while they're selling as much of that quality cacao as they can on the specialty market, the rest goes to whomever is willing to pay for it. Extra efforts put forth by farmers vary hugely. But a lot of it is in infrastructure for post-harvest facilities, as well as establishing co-ops and getting certificates. But even with all these changes, if prices don't increase, as Jan said, farmers will never use this information. Could you ever see the farmers that you've worked with, at least, cutting down their cacao and planting something else? Um, yes. So Ecuadorians are very good <laughs> short-term decision makers. So when the cacao price went down last year, two years ago, there were a lot of people on the coast cutting down their cacao. It's hard to, to say that for Latin America, because you see in each region very different trends. At the moment in the north of Colombia, the people start growing more cacao. In other parts of Peru, the people start growing more cacao because they see it as a really alternative income solution. They really see a future in the cacao. And then you travel to other parts where they just cut it down. It's hard to say Latin America makes this and that. It depends a lot on the, on the region. And also on, on what are the alternatives in, in each region. What is replacing cacao in the Americas right now? So the only crop that I really know that is replacing in a big farms is banana for export. And in the other areas, to be honest, I don't know. I know areas where they cut down the cacao and they did not replace it anyhow. So they just were angry about a, a bad price and they cut it down and now it's there. But that's very regional. In the Amazon area of, of Ecuador, we're facing at the moment a, a boom of dragon fruits of pitahaya. Um, so there is cacao being replaced by pitahaya. Then there are areas that are affected by high cadmium levels, for example in Peru, where it's no longer possible to export this to Europe, and that's a specialty market. So these cacao growers have been used to a very high market price because of the quality. And these people are changing at the moment, for example, to, to sugarcane and cane sugar production, but it's a very local initiative. So when you look at Latin America globally, then I, I would think there's 
no other crop replacing cacao. It's much more cacao replacing other crops. For the farmers you're working with, what proportion would you say cacao is their main source of income? It's hard to say because most of them, it's the main income, but for none of them, it's the, the only income. We are working with a lot of cacao farmers that have other crops for the local markets, like fruit trees that they grow in intercropping in their cacao plot. So I, I know there's a huge difference between like what cacao farmers in, for example, El Salvador versus in Brazil or Peru might need to live. But what kind of price increase would cacao farmers need in order to be at least satisfied with the quality of life that they can get from farming cacao? Yeah, how, how to answer that? What we have to be aware is that the supply chain of producing specialty cacao is also much more complex. In the end, you have to be always aware, even if you pay three times world market price as an FOB price, um, you will not get maybe three times farm gate price to the farm. So it's for the farmers at the end, the only thing that count in this sense is a farm gate price. But on the other hand, the production, because there are rural areas where the cacao productions are so low, it's in theory even possible to increase them by a factor 10. So while the prices some chocolate makers pay for specialty cacao might be three times above world market price, that may not be what farmers actually earn. Producing specialty cacao involves more work and usually lower volume, which requires more initial investment. But the chocolate company Jan works for, Original Beans, works on cacao projects around the world. All their projects are located near conservation-specific areas with the ideal of providing locals with an alternative income through cacao. Some of these projects focus mainly on increasing yield per tree. This means that farmers can double their seasonal income by doubling how much they grow on their land. But one company can only do so much on the ground. If cacao is to continue being profitable, the prices everyone pays must rise and stay there. What do you think will be the biggest problems with growing or maintaining the cacao industry in the Americas in the future? Cacao will be always an, an alternative here for the whole Americas and especially for the poorer countries in South America just because there are no other alternatives. So we can complain a lot of uh, low cacao price and low productivities. But on the other hand, compared to other crops, it's still very attractive. And I think it always will be attractive. While cacao has the longest history in the Americas, most of the world's cacao is grown in Africa, particularly in West Africa, in Cote d'Ivoire and Ghana. In Ghana, there's even a saying. People say, Ghana is cocoa, cocoa is Ghana. This is Dr. Christy Leslie, our Ghana-based cocoa researcher. Since 2005, Christy has been researching the politics and economics of the cocoa industry, with a focus on West Africa. The fruit has a pretty long history on the continent, with rather recent intensive cultivation. Do you happen to know when cacao first hit the African continent or the islands around Africa? 
was it late 1700s? Yeah, I mean, it depends on where, right? Because Africa's a big place. Um, but yeah, I would say, whew, gosh, by the late 1700s, there might have been little bits of cocoa somewhere, but it was really across the, the 19th century, you know, across the 1800s that we start to see cocoa starting to appear. But the large scale industry that we see today didn't really start until the late 1800s and certainly into the early 1900s. So it was like the first, I would say the first decade of the 20th century was when African cocoa production, well, no, that's not really true because Sao Tome was earlier. So yeah, late, late 1800s is when you start to see like the large scale stuff. And then, you know, Ghana itself, um, certainly the first decade of the 20th century became the number one cocoa producer in the world. Christie's studies have also looked into the cultural issues surrounding cacao. And one of the biggest problems she's running into now is the stories other people want to tell around Ghanaian cocoa. What kind of narrative is it that they think you want to hear? Is it just that you want to hear some sob story? It depends on the issue, right? So if we take child labor as, as our example, it's, it's like... Enough journalists have come, you know, enough researchers have come, enough organizations have come expecting to see and hear about a certain like condition of labor here, um, and, you know, for children. And like farmers have learned how to respond. And like the responses would be things like, yes, we have used children to do certain kinds of labor in the past, but now we have learned how to not do that. You know, and I've been on many, many, many cocoa farms and understand that the realities are incredibly complex and every farmer is in a different situation, even though there are many commonalities to growing and selling cocoa for a living across West Africa. Every family is in a different situation. But when you're dealing with like super sensitive topics around people's livelihoods and around ideas about Africa that come into play constantly in conversations around cocoa from this region, I think it's really hard to get people to let their guard down a little bit and to talk quite honestly about what their realities. Can you give a primer on the power dynamics in cocoa and like the cocoa value chain? Yeah, I mean, you know, broadly speaking, we're looking at a geographically quite disparate scenario. Cocoa grows in the tropics and it has historically not been processed or consumed here. That happens in the temperate zones in Europe and North America and for the most part historically. And so, you know, you've got like the raw material be being produced in one part of the world and all of the value added to it and all the pleasure of consuming it happening in a totally different part of the world. And so, you know, farmers are really well aware of this. One power dynamic that's been really present in conversations I've had with farmers over these many years is that they understand that someone is taking the crop that they work so hard to grow and turning it into this beautiful thing, like this beautiful industrial product, and they can't access that product. 
and nor can they even participate in its manufacture. You know, and so a lot of the power is really condensed on the manufacturing side because it's so much more valuable, like chocolate's so much more valuable than cocoa, economically speaking. For example, in Ghana, they will say things like, we know that Ghana has no national chocolate industry. Like we know that our country produces all this cocoa, but it doesn't manufacture chocolate. And we're upset about that. And they recognize that power lies with the people who do control the value-added end of things. These overrepresented narratives are distractions. They're important to the future of cocoa because they take away attention from the real problem, prices. When Christy first visited Ghana 20 years ago, in 1999... The first time I came to Ghana ever was like, 1999, I think. And there was no chocolate. You know, there's one local brand. It's called King's Bite. And it's made by a government company. Um, you know, now, however many years later, there are many local chocolate makers and confectioners. And so I have definitely observed craft chocolate rising in this part of the world. At the same time, that's really tiny if we look at things from an economic perspective. And as far as the cocoa industry, craft doesn't change anything around that. You know, there's like the cocoa industry in Ghana and in West Africa is, is basically still functions in the same way as it did for many decades. I think craft chocolate has come to dominate conversations and whatever narratives craft chocolate is telling about cultivating specific varietals or paying a higher price and doing direct trade is just what people think about now and they think about a pathway to change. And like it is just economically completely irrelevant in West Africa. Like, it's like nobody here cares. Like, so yes, I said there are many new craft chocolate makers and, and like beautiful confectioners in Accra where I live and you know I'm so thrilled to see this industry happening and all the work that these people are doing is incredibly exciting to me but and I think that it it, it creates a cultural shift but economically it's like zero you know? <laughs> like and so you know it's it's there's no like the cocoa industry is exactly the same from an economic standpoint whether you have craft chocolate makers in a car or not that's not just for people here in ghana making chocolate that's for every craft chocolate maker every single craft chocolate maker in the united states could say we want to buy like, cocoa from ghana and ivory coast and it would be like the tiniest droplet in the humongous ocean that is cocoa in West Africa. Something that came up repeatedly during my conversation with Christy is this idea of fine flavor cacao. Many people have poised fine flavor or specialty cacao as a way to conserve forests and to bring more income to farmers. Sustainability seemed to be the buzzword in 2019, but specialty cacao isn't the answer for everyone. It certainly won't be the factor which redefines cocoa cultivation. Indeed, it's not even appealing to most farmers, particularly in Ghana. They just want to grow their trees and earn a good price for all their hard work. In Africa, to what extent are farmers actually able, even if they wanted to, to switch their crops from cacao? I, I, just, I just have never met a farmer that 
would even consider it, you know, I mean, not in the areas I work in, which are obviously the cocoa growing areas, but, um, you know, and there are parts of Ghana, for example, where like palm, you know, oil palm is massive and, you know, every direction you look in, you just see oil palm in every direction, but it's, it's like cocoa is the main income source, you know, for like literally millions of smallholders across this region. And it, it certainly in Ghana, to a lesser extent in Ivory Coast, but in both countries, I mean, I mean, really in Ghana, the the level of government support and investment in this crop has been such that like, it, it's it's almost inconceivable that someone would be like, yeah, I'll do better with this other tree. Like, it's just not it's just not something that farmers have expressed to me as a desire or even something in their imagination. And that's not to say that farmers don't plant other things. Obviously, of course they do. You know, like there's no farm I've ever been on that doesn't have food crops or shade trees or, you know, whatever. Like there's lots of intercropping and, you know, farmers are extremely diverse in their, their you know, livelihood options. But the, like the reality is cocoa here is, is kind of it, you know, um, Wherever you go in Ghana, you will hear people say, Ghana is cocoa, cocoa is Ghana. And I think that pretty much sums it up. You know, <laughs> there's, there's no other crop or no other plant that you can substitute and like say that same thing. It's just, it's just not, cocoa is part of the national identity here. What proportion of the farmers you say rely upon cacao for their main source of income? Oh, I mean, in Ghana, like, most you know there's there's there is other agriculture here there are other crops but farming here is pretty much cocoa you know like the other way to think about it is what does each crop bring into the national revenue like at times it's been number one you know it's been Ghana's biggest earner maybe cocoa is down to like 25 percent or something but I mean it's a massive part of foreign exchange earnings of this country agriculture is very much tied to cocoa again not exclusively but it's the mainstay, you know, cocoa is the thing that if you are aspiring to farm something, you're pretty much going to aspire to farm cocoa. Certain parts of the country, there would be other options, particularly oil palm. Yeah, and then there's coconut, there's other things, but pretty much cocoa is it. According to Christy, farmers are caring for their crops with specific harvest seasons in mind. But with climate change, these changing seasons aren't nearly as predictable or clean as they used to be. Cocoa depends upon rainfall, so when droughts increase in intensity, it hurts yield. The same goes for intense, unexpected rainfall. Droughts dry out the roots of trees, while heavy rainfall knocks flowers off branches, stopping them from ever becoming fruits. Farmers care for their trees with the expectations of certain harvest seasons, and those seasons are becoming less predictable. What effects of climate change have you noticed in recent years on farms? And, and what do you see as cacao's future in the face of, of a warming climate and natural disasters? Yeah, you know, I, I'm not the best qualified person to speak to the specifics of climate change here, but I can say what farmers have shared and I can say what, you know, I have learned from other people with more expertise in the area than me. Um, but I would say, you know, the scenario here is not the 
best possible scenario in the whole world, but I wouldn't say that that's unusual. I mean, where is like who's preserved their natural resources, you know, to maintain our climate in the best possible way? Like nobody. The fact is that, you know, the forests in Ivory Coast and Ghana are fairly decimated at this point. You know, there's other more intact forest areas um, kind of over in the Sierra Leone or Liberia side of things. But, you know, the major deforestation has has happened. um, And that has definitely contributed to like regional climate instability. As the earth warms, West African environment is not as able to respond to those changes as maybe it would have been like a couple hundred years ago but and that does impact farming so i would say you know i don't think there's any imminent danger it's not like i go into the bush now and they're like farmers are telling me there's no cocoa left i mean they're they're quite hopeful and certainly the last few years have been years of extreme abundance of you know cocoa across ivory coast and ghana um this year is looking to be pretty solid as well. So, you know, are we going to run out of cocoa tomorrow? Definitely not. You know, are we going to run out of cocoa in 10 years? Probably not. Um, What the long-term impacts are, you know, of climate change on the cocoa producing environment here, I I can't think that they would be very positive, but how many, how long is it going to take? I don't know. Like, does anybody know a hundred years, 200 years? I mean, I think it's a really uncertain future, but, it's it's very surprising to me when I read articles um, where people say we're running out of chocolate because it's definitely not my experience in the largest cocoa growing region on the planet. The future in Ghana and hopefully all of Africa will be more value addition but the value added will be different in each region. Therefore, farmer income will continue to be unpredictable, dictated by a market nobody bothers to explain to them. The massive consideration here is clearly price. For example, the current price percentage farmers are getting is ideally 70% of world market price, at least in Ghana. This means that if the price of cocoa sold in Ghana were, say, 2,000 US dollars per ton, for example, Farmers ideally receive 1,400 US dollars per ton, or $1.40 per kilo, or roughly 60 cents per pound. But the percentage farmers get has been much lower in years past, when there was more cocoa available than people wanted to buy. One way in which cocoa price and production will undoubtedly be affected is by rising demand. When demand rises higher than supply, prices must rise to compensate. As huge potential markets in China and India demand more cocoa, farmers' prices should theoretically rise as well. But so far, prices for farmers aren't rising at all. Because the type of chocolate which uses lots of cacao isn't all that common in India and China, or in Asia as a whole. And what is compound chocolate, for those who might not know? Well, compound chocolate, it's... A cheaper version of real chocolate, uh, mainly the main ingredient that we substitute is to remove the cocoa butter and substitute with some palm oil, which is uh, much cheaper in price and easily available. Despite its raging cultivation, as Christy said, Africa has only produced cacao at this level in the last decade. 
Asia, on the other hand, has over 300 years of history in cacao cultivation. But Asia consumes relatively little cacao. That's because most of the chocolate you'll find across Asia is compound chocolate. It basically uses cocoa as flavoring. The man speaking just now is Wilfred. He knows all about compound chocolate because it's been his family's main business for decades. My name is Wilfred. I'm the uh, owner of Ben's Adequar Bean to Bar Chocolate Factory in Malaysia. I have been in the chocolate making business for the past 19 years. The founder, my dad, actually started way back in 1960s. And uh, well, the Ben's Adequar project started in 2017, where we noticed that uh, the trend of Bean to Bar in Asia is still in the infant stage and there's a potential in the growth in this sector. It's all about educating people what are good chocolates and Asia does have good cacao. Although Benz still produces some mass-market chocolate, the brand of Benz Ethicoa is a completely different animal. The way of manufacturing chocolate in Asia may actually be one of the reasons Asian cocoa consumption is so low. So in terms of percent of cacao in each bar of chocolate or bar of confection, what would you say is the percent of cacao in those chocolate bars? Well, it ranged from uh, 6 to probably 12% of cacao, if you talk about a bar of compound chocolate. So now, how is your sourcing of your ingredients different with Benza Thicoa versus the more large-scale manufacturing side? It's very different. In Benzatikoa, we source mainly for good cacao beans. Whereas in the commercial chocolate making, we don't deal with beans. More ingredients. Here we are back to the basic, very simple, straightforward ingredients. The main ingredient is the cacao beans. We source from different parts of Asia. The sourcing is very much not just buying ingredients from big companies. We actually have to right now buy the raw cacao beans ingredients uh, from the farmers directly. Where do you, did you or do you distribute the mass market kind of chocolate that you've been making for 20 years or so? Well, we export to many countries across Asia and some parts of uh, Middle East. And in terms of the types of chocolate people can buy just across Asia, would you say that the Benz mass market, is that like moderate quality, low quality, high quality for what people can get in general around Asia? Mm. What, what level of chocolate is that? Well, I, I think generally in Asia, you tend to have a bigger market in terms of uh, value for money category. Uh, means the cheaper kind of chocolates, I would say more of the uh, candy bars, uh, sector uh, because generally the spending power in Asia is not as high as those in the Western. So in terms of the good parts and the bad parts of having compound chocolate be so popular in Asia, can you talk about the, the impact that it may have upon the environment? Well, I, I, I would see it this way. Uh, why compound chocolate is being developed in the past? It's more of an affordability. Chocolate used to be an expensive treat. Not many people can afford. 
And till today, even real chocolate, high quality chocolates are expensive. Not many people can afford to buy. I would say compound chocolate has its purpose. It does have cocoa content. It does has chocolate taste. But it's formulated for the less affordable group to allow them to have a taste of what chocolate is about. In itself, I would say it also helps to promote chocolate. Although, yeah, the cocoa content is not much, but it does allow more people to enjoy chocolate. So it does serve that purpose. While oil palm trees are increasing in popularity across Asia, they're also horrible for the environment. They suck up nutrients from the soil, leaving it almost useless. They also contribute to deforestation and are almost exclusively grown by themselves, with no other plant species. But palm oil and cocoa have a strange inverse relationship in Asia. Adding palm oil and flavorings keeps chocolate cheap and stable. And this keeps cocoa demand relatively low. But cocoa farmers need higher prices to keep them in cocoa, so that small supply is projected to continue shrinking. So in a way, palm oil is depressing the price of cocoa, while also being a lucrative alternative for cocoa farmers. It's a complicated relationship, but again, it all comes down to money. There are many negative things about palm oil. People are chopping down trees to, to plant palm trees. So that itself has a negative in the environment. But I would say compound chocolate does serve its own purpose. Without compound chocolate, I don't think many children in many parts of poorer countries can ever taste chocolate. It's not affordable for them. I think what is affecting the cacao industry is more of the price that they get from cacao the amount of work they put in to cultivate high-quality cacao is just not worth it. I think it's more of the farmers not being paid the right price for the effort that they've put in. That is the major problems that uh, I have seen from the different farms that I have visited. So what are the farmers' motivations? For the, for the farmers that you've met, what is motivating them to produce high-quality cacao? I think it's very much still monetary-wise. It's Financial yeah, financially, it's all about the price that they are being paid. So this is still the main motivation. Of course, you get a couple of them who are very interested in chocolate making themselves, but very much still financially, I would say. So how do you think this primarily financial incentive for Asian cacao farmers will affect the market going forward the next 10, 20 years? I think financially is still the key factors for, for the coming year, years to go. The current cacao market price is still well too low. Less than two, three US dollar a kilo is, is too, there's no incentive for them to put in that effort to, to really cultivate good cacao. The amount of time spent and the effort they put in is just not worth. That that is the main reason. And many of the farmers are very poor. We've been into the Philippines. You know, uh, they have the land. They have big lands, thousand trees, but they are just there's no motivation to do much. They just have the land, the trees, and they they do not know what to do. They are not getting the right income. 
with what they have. If prices don't get higher, what do you expect farmers to do? What do you think farmers will do in response to that? Well, simply they will chop down their trees and plant something more profitable. You know, uh, what's more profitable it's, it's, right now? Well, in Malaysia, definitely cacao is not profitable. Farmers are chopping down their trees, replaced with either palm oil or durian. It's simple to do that. And I think the other factor is the government support is very important. Uh, the grants and the support that given to the farmers is also very important. There is so much we can buy as a bean to bar maker, high quality, we pay high price. Yeah, but we can't buy more. So the government can play a part. For comparison, uh, how many grams is a bar of Benz at the Goa? Oh, chocolate bars are 32 grams. 32 grams. And for a 32 gram bar you just find in the supermarket, 7-Eleven, how much would that be? You can get a bar as cheap as probably uh, a ringgit. One, Which is about twenty five cents US. And then a bar of Benzatekoa is It's fifteen ringgit retailing. 15 ringgit, yeah. yeah, fifteen ringgit that would be about three to four dollars US. So you have to convince a consumer why you need to buy this. That is the challenge that a lot of bean to bar makers have to face. So maybe bean to bar isn't quite the boon we seem to think it is. But the spirit of Bindabar is in the right place. Transparency and good prices for good flavor. However, even the best prices can't stop typhoons from killing cacao flowers or droughts from starving trees. So while it's important to consider good prices, it's also important to consider climate change. In many ways, cacao's future is out of our hands. And while cocoa farmers everywhere are facing problems, they're not all facing the exact same problems. Cacao's future is relatively stable for now. But at the rate weather is changing and the rate at which we're paying farmers, there's no telling what the picture will be in 30 years. Or even another 10 years. So for now, let's just enjoy the chocolates we've got and work towards a more stable industry and planet in the coming years. Both at home and on the road. That's a wrap on season two. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Chocolate on the Road. If you liked it, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts and share it in any way you see fit. Your support makes all the effort put into each episode worth it. And especially huge thank you to Christy, Jan, and Wilfred for being in this episode. You may hear more from some of them in next month's bonus episodes. But to learn more about our guests and their work right now, check out the show notes for this episode at the link in the description or on my website at damecacao.com. That's D-A-M-E-C-A-C-A-O dot C-O-M. Have a wonderful day, and I hope you'll join me next time we go on the road. Mm-hmm.